welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. This is Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. And Nikki, we are on the last church today. Did this ring any bells from your Adventist days? <laughs> well, of course, because you know we were the Church of Laodicea. Indeed we were. Yes. And proud of it in some odd way. Well, yeah, because we were lucky enough to be the last day generation. Yeah. We were going to usher in the return of Christ. And everybody knew it from the days of Ellen White onward. Mm-hmm. And how dare Jesus have waited to come when he was supposed to come back then. Can you talk about what you thought Laodicea was as an Adventist? This is the seventh church of these seven to whom Jesus has written a letter in the book of Revelation. But what makes Laodicea different? And what did that mean to you as an Adventist? Well, I had a vague sense as an Adventist that we were the Church of Laodicea, that it had something to do with our moment in history, living near the last days, and it was a call to be passionate because the time's almost up, you know? So that was sort of the picture I had, the general picture I had in my head, and I was afraid of being lukewarm. I Mm -hmm. wanted to be hot. I didn't want to be cold because I had in my head that cold was bad. Never mind, Jesus says... If you were cold or hot, (laughs) you're useful, Uh but you're lukewarm, so I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. This is sort of the picture I had, but as we were coming to this podcast, I wanted to know really where that came from. And So I was looking for Ellen White quotes, and I came across a Sabbath school commentary from a few years ago, and I even Mm -hmm. listened to just the introduction of the Doug Batchelor teaching on it that he did like 10 years ago. Okay. And it seems from those things that I read that... Adventists teach their congregation that the seven churches are a panoramic view of the history of the church from the time Christ came all uh-huh. the way up until when he's going to come back again, because they believe they're the remnant and they're the ones who are going to restore the everlasting gospel to the last day lukewarm church. Yes. So I started to get a clearer picture of why I had that view in my head as an Adventist, and I started to think about what... I thought lukewarm meant as an Adventist. And really, it was a call to get serious, to take the Sabbath seriously, Mm -hmm. to take that last day gospel message that Ellen White was given to restore to the church who had lost it through the dark ages and never fully reformed and never fully brought it back. And so we were going to bring it back and we were going to save everybody because we're going to teach them about the Sabbath. And they were going to be able to pass that last day test. And so we had this big responsibility. And if we weren't taking that seriously, like the, you know, super Adventists were, (laughs) then we were just lukewarm. Uh huh. And and what would cold look like? I didn't really think about cold. I think I thought about it on a spectrum of cold is completely indifferent. Lukewarm is like, yeah, I go to church on Sabbath, mm-hmm. but sometimes I'll eat out. And then <laughs> and then hot is skirt to the ankle, vegan, yeah, and passing out tracks. That was my Ooh, mindset. Yeah. That's the what I thought. Girl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Well, pretty much the same actually. As an Adventist, I thought I was in the last day church and that that was Laodicea. And I've learned in studying for these seven churches in the last few weeks that 
there are different views within Christianity about how to interpret them. And there is a prevailing view among many Christians, it wasn't original with Ellen, that said that these churches represent views of historical times in the Christian church. But, you know, I don't think most people today believe that that's the best way to understand this. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I listen to the things that past, our Pastor Gary said in Word Search over, you know, eight years ago when he taught through Revelation, he doesn't think that's the most accurate way. He says, of course, there's there's application that can be made that way, but that's not the real purpose of these letters. And when I look at the letters, I don't see that as the main purpose either, because every one of the men's, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Mm-hmm. So that means it's for me too. Mm-hmm. But I understood that Laodicea was the last one, and it's so interesting because I never thought of Laodicea as a commendable thing. It was a church in trouble. It was the one that Jesus was threatening to spit out. And how could you feel proud of that? And yet I did. Well, it was a scary feeling too, wasn't it? It it was something that made you always feel like you had to try harder. Oh, yeah. And I, I have to say, related to how these churches are viewed in this book, When Doug Batchelor was teaching, he said, I'm just going to jump ahead to Laodicea because that's the church that's about us. And you might ask me, why why don't I do a series on all the churches? And he said, because I don't think we have time. And he got a hearty amen from the congregation because, you know, Jesus is coming. So he bypassed all of this amazing revelation that was given to John by God himself, by Christ himself, this high Christology, we learn so much about the Lord, about the deity of the Lord through these letters, and not to mention the messages that he gives to these churches that are warnings to us still today. Exactly, He bypassed all of that to get to the part that had to do with them. It was surprising and not. Yes. I mean, it was like one of the most blatant examples of... Well, here is the Bible. What does it mean to me? Instead of here is the Bible, what has God said about himself? And what has he said about me? And that's why I think we all were so confused and felt like we couldn't figure it out on our own. Exactly. Because we just went through it like skipping rocks on a lake. Yeah. Well, you know, I did a little looking in the online archives of Ellen White's writings. And I found some things that actually confirmed to me what you're saying and what my experience had been. This whole business of, oh, I'm lukewarm, I got to work harder, came from Ellen. Mm -hmm. So for example, it was interesting, I did a search on the phrase Laodicean church. Mm -hmm. And on that phrase alone, I came up with 248 examples from Ellen White's writings, just for that phrase, (laughs) Laodicean Church. So what I'm going to share here is just a tiny, tiny scratch on the surface. But this first quote is from her work, Counsels to Writers and Editors, page 99 and 100. And she says this, I am commissioned now to say to our brethren, humble yourselves and confess your sins, else God will humble you. The message to the Laodicean church comes home to those who do not apply it to themselves. And I want to just pause here and say, Doug Batchelor got his notion of how to read this straight from the prophet. Those who do not apply it to themselves, they are neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. Shall any one of us let the shame of our nakedness appear in the use of our God-given faculties of speech and in the use of our pen? And now listen to this. Shall we not consider that Christ's righteousness 
in his perfect obedience to his father's commandments, was the cause of his crucifixion. Nikki, we didn't even talk in this particular letter to the church at Laodicea about the reason for Christ's crucifixion. But right here in Ellen White's warning to the church, to the Adventist church, she comes out and says the Adventist view of Jesus's death. It was about his commandment keeping. Mm -hmm. He was executed because he kept God's law and made everybody mad. That's not why he died. That wasn't even what the Jews accused him of. (laughs) No, they accused him of calling himself God. But she takes it to the commandment keeping. And then she goes on. By perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah, we are to magnify the law and make it honorable. What mean these words placed before the people of God who against great obstacles are trying to fight the good fight of faith, saying, we will not bow the knee to Baal or give glory or honor to any who do this? Divine blessedness is pronounced upon those who keep the commandments, and a curse he declares against those who transgress his law. Well, there it is, Nikki, the whole thing summed up in a few short words. Yeah, she she got to the cross, went right past it, and told us to keep the law. <laughs> and furthermore, said Jesus died because of his commandment keeping. Yeah. Now, there was one more. This was from the New York Indicator. This was a letter that was written to the Adventists in New York in February of 1900. So if you think about the fact that the Adventist organization was founded in 1863, 22 years after the Great Disappointment, and that Ellen White died in 1915, this is a fairly late thing. This is a late Ellen White People who say, oh, she changed, Mm -hmm. she grew, she grew more Christ-like, more biblical. No, listen to this. She's saying, you want to buy of Christ gold, white raiment, and eye salve. Study this message to the Laodicean church, for it applies to many in New York. You need to be zealous and repent. Please consider, zealous does not mean a few feeble prayers and half-hearted confessions. It means a zealous, earnest, determined effort to conquer your worldly, selfish love and be consecrated, devoted Christians, shedding a tender warmth and love wherever you are. Are you ready? Are you waiting? Are you loving his appearing? And now listen to this. This is such an outright accusing paragraph. Your lifeless, heartless, frozen up efforts are not acceptable to God. There is no excuse for you to do so little for Jesus when he has done so much for you. Does not God behold your works? He says, I know thy works. God witnesses the heart service, and God witnesses the mere lip service. We are in perilous times. If you had kept pace with the opening providence of God and made the most of the light and privileges granted to you, you would today be a power in the world. You would not need these words I now write you. You would be all light in the Lord. Divine power and glory would be manifested in your gatherings." And Nikki, that is how I understood my role in the Laodicean church. I never read that quote from her as an Adventist. I read other things and I heard other things, but that sums up my understanding of my role as a member of the church of Laodicea. And we were responsible for bringing Christ back. 
Absolutely. If we had done our job, he would have come long ere this. So the fact that Christ has delayed his coming is because we have been naughty children. We have not done the work he gave us to do. We have not been determined and vigilant and self-abnegating and overcoming our sin. And if we had, he would have come. This is how I understood the message to the church at Laodicea. And what I understood, like you, was that to be lukewarm was to just like go, oh, you know, I love the Sabbath, I keep the Sabbath, I do my best, and but I'm not out every Sabbath afternoon doing the glow tracts. And that was lukewarm. I was sure that I would warm up once the Sunday law came. Many people are. We have a cousin who has said, oh, when the Sunday law comes, I will come back. Haven't you heard that mm-hmm. often? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that way. That's the church at Laodicea through Adventist lenses. And that came straight from the prophet and from the teachers all through the years. So, Nikki, why don't we actually read the letter to Laodicea and talk about what Jesus is actually saying? So, this is chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline therefore be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And now, having studied this, Nikki, I find this letter very emotional. Mm -hmm. It's not what I thought it was. Mm -hmm. It's a very serious letter, and it's a sad letter, but it's not what Ellen White said. So let's go back up to verse 14 and just talk about first how Jesus reveals himself to the church at Laodicea. And I just want to say, you know, it's interesting that these letters are not John's interpretation of Jesus, although that would be fine if that were the way God intended it to be done. But these are red letter words. These are the words Jesus spoke, and these are the words John wrote down. So, how does Jesus reveal himself to this particular church? Well, first he says that he's the Amen, which is a unique title, and it means truth. It was interesting to hear John MacArthur talk about this, and he said that Amen was a declaration of truth in the same way at the beginning of the sentences where Christ says, truly, truly, I say to you. It's an emphasis of truth truth, something you can rely on. It's speaking of the veracity of what's being stated. That's such a great point. I think it's also interesting that this particular use of the word amen as a proper noun, as a proper name of Mm -hmm. Jesus, Mm -hmm. it echoes 
what God said to Isaiah in Isaiah 65, 16. He said, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. And I think it's really interesting that Jesus so clearly connects himself with the identity of Yahweh. This is Yahweh speaking. The Yahweh who spoke to Isaiah is now speaking to John. And to this particular church, he is using the designation of I am truth. And he hasn't done that to any of the others. I am the amen, the truth. That's what amen means. It's also interesting to me that Paul echoes this idea of the amen and truth when he writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 18 to 20, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. And here it comes. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Jesus is the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. And when you think about that, that's astonishing. Mm-hmm. The things that where, where God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have cast your sins as far as east is from the west. All the promises he made through all the Old Testament and all the promises in the new. Your bread and water will be sure. Don't worry about you'll eat, drink, or wear. Everything is true because of Jesus. He is the yes and amen. So then he also describes himself as the faithful and true witness. So not only is he the amen, not only is he the truth, but he had a testimony that he came and he brought to us. In 1 John chapter 5, we read that God had a testimony that he bore out about his son, that his son is eternal life and all who believe in him will have eternal life. And when we don't trust that, that gospel message, that everlasting message, and we begin to change it and twist it, we don't have eternal life. It all comes down to the object of our faith. And that is the testimony. That is what Christ witnessed to us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that is so important. I think it's so interesting that at the beginning of the book of Revelation, and again at the end, this faithful witness idea is used of the Lord Jesus. In Revelation 1, 4, and 5, John is introducing this letter, and John is introducing his role in receiving this particular vision from Jesus. And he says he received it from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. The gospel he has summarized when John introduces the faithful witness. And then in Revelation 19.11, where we see the end of the future battle of Armageddon, and we see Jesus coming back and killing his enemies with the sword out of his mouth, we read this in the 11th verse of Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, 
and he who sat on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So Jesus is revealed to us from the beginning to the end of the book as the Amen, the faithful witness, the true one, the one who embodies truth. You know, what What I love about that is when he talks about Jesus as the faithful witness in chapter 1, verse 5, he immediately says the firstborn from the dead. When Christ was here in his earthly ministry, he told his disciples what was going to happen. They didn't get it. But when he was resurrected, when that was God's amen <laughs> to the Lord's yes. sacrifice, everybody knew, oh, he told us the truth. Yes. He bore witness to the truth. He is resurrected. He is bringing in his kingdom. This is real. And as surely as that was true, everything he says is coming next is true. true. And that takes (gasps) us to the end of Revelation where we see him on his throne. And we can know the same way we know Christ resurrected and that tomb was empty. We can know all that is to be studied in future weeks is going to happen. That is so reassuring to me. It doesn't feel like a maybe and like, oh, I've got to figure this out so I can reassure myself. No, this is true. Mm -hmm. This is real. So the last way Jesus reveals himself in this introduction is the beginning of the creation of God. That's what he calls himself. Now, how are we to understand that? There are people like the Jehovah's Witnesses, like other people who say, well, He was the first creation. He was the first created being. Mm -hmm. Or he had an origin sometime in the past. And to be honest, that's where most of our Adventist original founding members were. They believed Jesus was created or originated sometime in the past, but was not eternal almighty God. In fact, Ellen White even said he is not God almighty. So how are we to understand this? You know, when I first read that, I thought, wait a minute, Jesus was created? Because the words seem a little bit ambiguous, and it's definitely something I can see being a proof text for folks like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mm -hmm. even the Arians that started Adventism. But we see this clarified for us in Colossians 1.15, and and this is a good moment to just say a proper hermeneutic is going to look at a text that is a little bit unclear, and it's going to look at what the rest of Scripture says about it for that clarification. So, you go to the clearer parts to know what's actually being said, to understand the the harder parts. Well, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells the church that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him, all things hold together. And then we also read in the gospel of John that nothing was made without him Yeah. in the first chapter. So this isn't saying that he was created. He is the firstborn of creation, as we read in chapter 1, verse 5, when he talks about the faithful and true witness, the firstborn from the dead. He's over all creation, and he's the one God used to create. Right. And our Pastor Gary, when he taught through this section, did explain that the Greek behind this phrase is one that can mean the first in rank, 
So Jesus is in control, as Colossians so amazingly explains. He is the one who made all things and in whom all things hold together. So he is the first in rank over creation. It doesn't mean he is created, like you just said, but he's the first in rank. He owns us and we depend on him. Our life depends on him. You know, we've talked a lot as we've gone through the letters to the churches about how the city and what's going on in the city affects how God introduces himself in these letters. And so Jesus chose to speak of himself as the firstborn of creation. Mm -hmm. One thing that was interesting to learn as I listened to John MacArthur teach on this passage is that Colossae was only 10 miles away from Laodicea. And Paul had to deal with Christological heresies in Colossians. This is why we have this incredible text that we just read out of Colossians talking about who Christ is and that he is the first over all. And in this letter, I hadn't noticed this before, but in this letter, Paul actually tells the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 16, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So there's reason to believe that Laodicea had taken up with this heresy about Christ having been created. Yes. And that they were teaching this in their church. They had a wrong view of Christ, which works out to be a wrong Christ. That's so true. And you know, as we have said before, and as John MacArthur clearly said in his sermon, To believe in a wrong Jesus, a wrong conception of who he is, is not to believe unto salvation. It is to have a heresy that destroys the entire gospel. I'll never forget Paul Carden from the Centers for Apologetics Research sitting on a question and answer panel at one of our earlier former Adventist Fellowship conferences. And in the course of the questions and answers, somebody asked something, I don't remember the exact question, but I will never forget Paul's answer. He said, if you're believing in the wrong Christ, you are not believing unto salvation. And I think that is super important when we look at this letter. This church, by the way we can tell from the letter to the Colossians, this church was involved in apparently bad Christology. They had been a true church at one time. They had received the letters from Paul. Apparently, Epaphras may have planted this church along with the church at Colossae. But the fact is that somewhere along the line, they had adopted bad Christology that had seeped in. There were so many influences that could have brought this into the church, and they had apparently embraced bad Christology, and that was bearing some really bad fruit. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. Well, in the next two verses, we read where Jesus is saying, I know your deeds, that they're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot because you're lukewarm. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, there was something geographical about Laodicea that made this a particularly pertinent warning. What was that? Well, they didn't have any fresh water, Yeah, which is fascinating because they were located in a valley. It was like an intersection of travel. There was travel going north and south and east and west. It was a huge trade center. Yeah, They were very wealthy, mm-hmm. but they didn't have drinking water. They had to bring that in. Which was fascinating to me. 
They were close to the city called Hierapolis, and they were close to Colossae. Now, Hierapolis was famous for its hot springs. In fact, even to this day, the faces of the cliffs under Hierapolis are discolored from the chemicals in that hot water that spilled over the edges from Hierapolis. Colossae had fresh cold water, but Laodicea had piped in lukewarm water and they can still see the old aqueduct pipes there. Mm-hmm. And they're encrusted with chemicals from the water that was brought in. It had terrible water. And based on what I learned from John MacArthur, there was something in the water that had the effect that it made people nauseous. Like yeah. they literally wanted to vomit. So when Jesus says, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, he's essentially saying, think about your experience in your city. This is describing your spiritual condition, and I want to spit you out. I want to vomit you up. Hot water was useful for relaxation. It had healing properties. The cold water was useful for quenching thirst. It was fresh. It nurtured the body. There was no use for this church. There was nothing useful about them. Which tells us that this church is dead. If they're not hot, they're not cold, but they're lukewarm. You know, it's not like we thought in Adventism where, you know, lukewarm has a little bit more spiritual awareness than the cold. That's not the point here. Lukewarm means you're not engaged with anything. You're just living your life. You're just conducting your commerce because Laodicea was a wealthy city. It had gold. It had banking. It was famous for its garment district that produced a really specifically unique black wool fabric. They had eye salve that they made from the chemicals from this water that they mixed with the essential oil from a plant from the honeysuckle family, and they exported it around the world. And it's interesting too, that salve was created by famous medical people who came out of the cult of Asclepius. Isn't that interesting? And Laodicea had a medical school. So it reminds me of Pergamum. Yeah. But anyway, they were a very wealthy city, And they had all this stuff. And Jesus says, you're lukewarm, like your water. You're not tolerable. And they were proud too. Because when that earthquake of AD 60 came through and it leveled all of those cities, you remember the Caesar came in and he gave them money, gave those other cities money to rebuild. And they were so grateful and they had temples. And But Laodicea was like, no, no, we got this. (laughs) And they, with their own money, rebuilt their city. And they were so proud of themselves for that. Yes. They were better than Philadelphia and Sardis, who took Rome's money. So when you have that picture in the back of your mind as you read the next verse, it fills out all of the meaning here that's missing when you just think, you know, we are Laodicea. Yeah. (laughs) He says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. There's so much in these two verses, but I think one of the things that jumped out to me as we were preparing for this podcast was the fact that they did not know that they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Yes. Didn't that remind you of being an Adventist? Yeah. I had no idea how wrong I had it all. I, I didn't, didn't know. Either. 
I loved being an Adventist and felt proud of it. I was proud of our medical school. I was proud of our educational system. I was proud of the Sabbath. I was proud of the fact that we had special information from Ellen. I felt like we really were superior. I had no idea I was blind, wretched, naked, cold, and dead. There was something that John MacArthur said that I really connected with when he was talking about this verse. He said, it would be better to be an atheist. It would be better to be completely ignorant of the church and the gospel. Anything would be better than this. This is the ultimate apostate hypocrisy. You know about Christ and you've created a false Christ. You know about God and you've created a false God and you're smugly self-confident This characterizes entire denominations across the world and in American history, even up to today. This characterizes, quote unquote, Christian universities and seminaries. They think they're rich materially. They think they're rich in spiritual knowledge. They have an elevated knowledge and they don't know their condition, the condition that comes to anybody who has a wrong view of Christ. Wow. And that so describes my experience inside Adventism. And you know, another thing he pointed out is the fact that these people were naked and didn't know it, and that the Lord Jesus is telling them to buy from him white raiment. He says that indicates that these people are not alive. They're not spiritually alive. And I think that's a really important point because the description of Laodicea is not of a true living church that has just backslidden. It is the picture of a church that calls itself a church. And to be sure, it was founded, apparently founded in the real gospel. But now, approximately 35 years later, it is dead. The people are not alive in Christ. John MacArthur went on to talk about what a church of non-Christians looks like. He believed that this is an unconverted church. Mm -hmm. And he says that it's the sickening condition of thinking you're spiritually rich when you're bankrupt, Mm -hmm. of thinking you're beautiful when you're wretched, of imagining that you're to be envied when you're to be pitied, of believing you see everything clearly when you see nothing and are stone blind, feeling you are clothed in spiritual finery when you are naked. You know, it it makes me think of the time when Pastor Gary was talking about how we are to pray for our unbelieving loved ones. And he said, begin by praying that they would know their need. That is such a great point. Because when we don't know our need, we're content in our deadness. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I was struck by this uh, discussion of their wealth, their, you know, their Mm -hmm. gold. Mm -hmm. And I know J. Vernon McGee said this, my friend, you ought to check how the money you give to Christian work is being spent. When you write your will, I hope you will leave money for Christian work, but you ought to make sure that after you are gone, it is going to be spent for what you intended. And I thought, you know, Adventists, they have whole departments that go to retired people to convince them to change their wills and their trusts and to leave much or all of their estates to the Adventist organization, sometimes without any of the heirs knowing that's being done. That is common. And I want to say... Money is at the core of almost all deception and false religion. I mean, you know the phrase, follow the money? Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus is asking this church to buy gold from him and to stop focusing on the gold from their commerce and their banking. 
it's not the accumulation of wealth that determines whether or not a church is successful and spiritual. And you know, a lot of so-called pastors today will actually make their people believe that if they give their money, then God will bless them. And I know that Adventism isn't strictly a health and wealth gospel, but in an application, it sort of is. If you give your tithe, if you give your double tithe, you won't have room for all the blessings God will pour out. And I want to say, that is not the measure of a Christian. That is not the measure of an obedient person. There's one command in the New Testament for anybody, and that is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. and will be saved. It's not about the money. And that's why Jesus says, buy the gold from me. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of um, in Job, where Job is talking about how man knows how to dig down into the depths of the earth and to pull out the precious stones, but he doesn't know where to go for wisdom. Right. Wisdom is from God. And we see in verse 18, when, when Jesus says this, he says, buy from me gold refined by fire. And it gives that picture of sanctification we had read about last week when we looked at our works and how they would be tested by the fire. When we come to Christ, we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's God's righteousness in Christ That's that's given to us. And then he says that that will make us rich. And he says to buy from him white garments. There is the picture of that righteousness that we are clothed in Christ. We are no longer naked. Like Adam and Eve were when they fell. And you know, when Adam and Eve realized they were naked and God called them and found them hiding in the garden, it was he who clothed them. Yes. They had cobbled together fig leaves and God gave them clothes of animal skins to cover their nakedness. God has always been the one to clothe our nakedness. And it's also interesting that he tells them to buy eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And what's neat about that is the salve in Laodicea, it only soothed. It had no healing properties, but he's saying, I will make you see. Yeah. He gives us eyes to see. This is a call to salvation. It is. This is not a believing church that's just kind of gotten lackadaisical. This is an unbelieving church. It's interesting, too, that buy from me the white garments and the gold tread in the fire echoes again Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 55.1, where God says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. God, <laughs> from the Old Testament times, has been asking people to come to Him and buy without cost. <laughs> the sustenance for life. And now Jesus is saying that to the Laodicean church. And Jesus even used this metaphor of the buying. When he said in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. So the gold and the garments and the medicinals, that Laodicea has, they can't work. They can't give them life. And I want to say the international success and the medical fame and expensive Sabbath clothes we grew up with and the renowned organ transplants and proton accelerators and pipe organs in the churches, these things look good to the public and they look good from a fleshly perspective, but they cannot recommend Adventism as a true church. All people no matter 
what anti-gospel or doctrinal aberration they believe, all people have to repent and buy the beyond price gold of Jesus' shed blood. So then he says in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. When I look at this, there's so many different ways people have talked about this verse. When I look at this, I see the electing, the calling love of God that calls us out of our depravity and our deadness and into life in Him. You know, it's interesting. Um, I heard John MacArthur say in regards to this text that many people look at this text and say, because it says those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, that that suggests that this is a true church, that God is just calling to repent. He said, and I agree with him given the context, he said, I see this as not the salvational love of a true church, but the calling, electing love of God, the calling, electing love of Christ, who so loved the world that God sent his son. And then again in John 16, where Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come and will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, all on the basis of what Jesus has done and that his death has disarmed Satan. These are things that we know from the Bible. The love of God has sent Jesus, and it's that love that he is using to call these people out. And I want to say also, I'm sure that given the fact that Laodicea wasn't just an unbelieving city, but it was actually a dead church that had been planted in truth at one time, that the Lord Jesus had a special spot. It's like if you think of a parent with with a wayward child who just rejects the Lord and goes far away and rejects the family, you don't stop loving that child, even though you need to pray for his salvation. Even if your, your contact with them is cut off because they've cut off contact, you still have that love for that child. And I think Jesus loved this church, even though these people had apostatized, it looks like. I don't see this as a verse saying this church is really alive. I see this as a church reassuring us that Jesus knows the churches, he knows his own, and he is calling anybody who is his, who hears him, to repent. And we get that fuller context from the next verse where he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. So we see him on the outside of the church. He's at the door to the church knocking. And see, that's different from the way I learned this as an Adventist. I learned that this verse is about the individual heart, Mm -hmm. that Jesus stands outside and we're supposed to let Jesus into our hearts. Oh, open the door and invite him in. That is not the context. Now, it's not necessarily wrong to use this metaphor in reference to individual salvation. That's not necessarily a wrong application, but it's not the context and it's not what Jesus is actually saying here. He is outside this church and it's the only church where he pictures himself outside the door, not in. He has 
no place inside that church, and he is knocking on the door of this church that was planted originally as a true church. And he's saying, if anyone hears me, open, and I will come and dine with him. And the word under dine is an amazing word because it's the word for the evening meal, the big meal of the day, the meal that included fellowship and time and relaxing and eating and talking together. And this is what Jesus is saying, I will have with the one who opens the door to me. So when I look at verse 20, I see this as an individual accountability before God. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This takes it down to the relationship that his sheep have with him. He says, my sheep hear my voice Mm -hmm. and another they won't follow. So he's calling them to have faith. They respond to him, but he's not telling them now go back and fix it. <laughs> no, go he's back not. and change and change from the inside, which is something that so many of us are tempted to do when we come to faith, when we learn the gospel. Of course we want to share it. It really is good news. It really, really is good news. But it isn't good news until you know the bad news. Right. And we didn't know the bad news. No. And when we get it all figured out, when we come to faith and we see it in scripture, we want to go back and tell everybody. And there's a temptation to stay in this dead church that has a false view of Christ and to try to fix it. That's not the call here. No. He is saying, I will come into him. He uses a very specific personal singular pronoun. If anyone hears my voice, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. So I want to say to all of the people that might be listening who have contemplated leaving Adventism for the Lord Jesus or who have done that already, or who may in the future, you can't change a false religion by becoming born again and staying inside. And the best way I understood that as I started this ministry, and people would say, well, can't Adventists be saved? Um, Can't I stay and go to church with my wife or my parents? I would say, why are we doing what we're doing if Adventism is actually okay, if you can actually stay inside and make a difference in that way? And I want to say this, if a Buddhist becomes a Christian, would he continue to go and worship at the Buddhist temple? If a Mormon becomes a Christian, would you advise them to continue to go and do temple work? And I know that almost everybody from Adventism would say, no, that's a false religion. That's a false gospel. And that's what I have to say to those who are still grappling with Adventism. Adventism has a false Christology, a false gospel. We can make the most difference by following the Lord Jesus out of the falseness and talking back in to the people who are still inside. And the fact of the matter is, when we're indwelled by God, He is where we are forever. That's right. (laughs) And so we carry Him into every interaction we have with every person. So choosing not to attend a local Adventist congregation doesn't mean you're keeping God from them. No. He is in you, and every interaction you have with a loved one, you're bringing Him into that. And that has more effect than staying and compromising your own witness by saying, well, I know it's false, but it's not so bad I can't stay here and worship with you and tell you the truth. No, you tell them the truth from the outside. Because the loving thing is to make sure they know their need, not to make them comfortable in their blindness. That's so well said. 
And we end this letter to the church with Jesus saying, I will give the one who overcomes to sit on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this takes us back to 1 John 5, 5, where the one who overcomes is born of God and that we overcome by our faith and that we can know that we have eternal life when we believe in Christ. That's the overcoming. Christ overcame the world. And when we believe in him, we're sealed by his spirit. He's overcome on our behalf. And not only that, but we have the amazing reward of literally reigning with him. Once again, we get that promise here in verses 21 and 22. He gives the one who overcomes to sit on his throne as he is sitting on his father's throne. Think about the implications of that. I don't know how to plumb that depth, but it's a promise that's not a metaphor. He lets us reign with him in some way in his kingdom, which is coming. And it's so exciting that here at the beginning of the book of Revelation, we have the promise and by the end, we will see the fulfillment. It's amazing. And then finally, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, this is a message not just for that ancient church at Laodicea, which had died since its inception. It's a, it's a message for all of us to know who Jesus is, to be alive, to be born again. And when we know who he is, not to stay and do dead works in a dead church, but to follow him where he leads us, wherever that is, and to lay everything down for the sake of knowing and serving and following him. And as we end these letters to these seven churches, which are for all of us for all time, I want to say again, if you're hearing this and you haven't trusted the real Jesus who created all things, who is God in substance in eternality, in omniscience, in omnipotence. He is God. If you haven't trusted him and what he did on our behalf by becoming human, by taking our imputed sin in himself to the cross, by enduring the wrath of God for our sin and dying our death that our sin caused, if you haven't trusted his resurrection, which proves that his death was sufficient for the forgiveness and reconciliation of all who believe. This is the time to do it. We were born dead in sin. We need a Savior. We don't need to become good. We need to be made alive. And God himself will impute his righteousness to us when we believe. If you haven't trusted him, do it now. Join us over the next couple of weeks as we take some time to reflect on the lessons that we've learned both in the condemnations and the commendations that Christ gave to these seven churches. And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.